0: Hello, Stackers. I'm Rhett the DM for Stack of Dice, and with me is... Thane, who plays as Peter Greyhawk. That's right, and we're going to do something a little bit different this week and next. We are going to take an idea that I ran across some years ago. It's nothing new or earth-shattering. In fact, it's been around for quite a while. But uh, what we want to do is take the concept of the monomyth and break it down using Joseph Campbell's Heroic Cycle. And for those of you who aren't aware of who Joseph Campbell is, he was a professor at Sarah Lawrence College back in the early to mid-20th century, and uh, he was a teacher of comparative religion, comparative literature, comparative mythology. In his research, he found that there were a lot of connective tissues between many of the stories out there, especially in the larger sweeping stories that have time for the hero to rise in action and then accomplish certain things throughout the myth. And so what we're going to do, Thane and I are going to talk about this heroic cycle, and we're probably going to end up breaking it into two parts. We're also going to take some time to slow it down and come up with ideas for how you could work these into a game. What kinds of things could you do to mirror some of these? And if you're thinking this sounds rather highbrow and difficult to understand... Just think about it like this. When George Lucas was interviewed after creating Star Wars, he actually credited Joseph Campbell's heroic cycle with being a lot of the inspiration for the Star Wars story. So if you like that kind of popular culture, that kind of popular science fiction, uh, then you have unconsciously tapped into Joseph Campbell's heroic cycle. And as you start to think about these things, and as we discuss them, break them down into the different components, you're going to find, hmm, It's a lot more places than I thought. So in addition to perhaps helping you as a dungeon master to add a little depth or structure to a campaign arc, uh, maybe you'll find some interest in looking for these kinds of things in stories that you are well familiar with. So let's take a look. The Heroic Cycle, and as I'm looking at the Wikipedia page, there are several different variants of the Heroic Cycle. It looks like Joseph Campbell was the first to identify something like this, but then there have been subsequent cycles that others have proposed that seem to be based or founded pretty heavily on the original that Joseph Campbell discovered. But we're going to focus on his because I've read his work, Thane has read some of his work, and we have both enjoyed the concepts that are laid out. And so we just thought it would be fun to, uh, as a help, as an aid to Dungeon Masters, Try to lay out exactly what the cycle is and then break it down into the different parts, read through what each one means. And then, like I said, at the end, or I guess as we want to, we'll work in here's how you could work it into your game. So, as I said, there are 17 different parts to Joseph Campbell's heroic cycle. And we're going to take the first nine in this episode. And those first nine are the call to adventure, refusal of the call, supernatural aid, crossing the threshold, belly of the whale, the road of trials, the meeting with the goddess, the woman as temptress, and atonement with the father. So let's start with that first one, the call to adventure. And the nice thing about the Wikipedia article is it does break down each of these and gives the text from Joseph Campbell's work, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and so we don't have to go flipping through a book to get it. It's all right here. So according to the Wikipedia entry, the call of adventure is to a forest, a kingdom underground, beneath the waves or above the sky, a secret island, lofty mountaintop, or profound dream state but it is always a place of strangely fluid and polymorphous beings, unimaginable torments, superhuman deeds, and impossible delight. The hero can go forth of their own volition to accomplish the adventure as did Theseus when he arrived in his father's city Athens and heard the horrible history of the Minotaur, or they may be carried or sent abroad by some benign or malignant agent, as was Odysseus, driven about the Mediterranean by the winds of the angered god Poseidon. The adventure may begin as a mere blunder, or still again, one may be only casually strolling when some passing phenomenon catches the wandering eye and lures one away from the frequented paths of men. Examples might be multiplied ad infinitum from every corner of the world. Thane, in your mind, what is, how would you boil that down? What is the call to adventure?
1: Well, it's fairly well summed up in the title itself, but In essence, it is the attraction that garners the attention of whoever the adventurer is to be in the story. So whoever is going to be doing the adventuring, the initial part of the story is the reason why they're going on the adventure. You know, usually for the sake of wealth, for the sake of others they care about, for eternal life, etc. All these things, usually the goal itself is a very human aspiration
0: yeah and so let's take a look at some of those popular movies out there uh, some of those with the huge stories obviously star wars comes immediately to mind because of george lucas's explicit statement that yes he did use this as a foundation the call to adventure is pretty easy to see Mm -hmm. luke a young farm boy he's living in his world day to day he he complains about everything he
1: wants to he wants to go out and like do his own thing yeah isn't it like he wants to go to the Imperial Flat Academy or something like that?
0: Uh, that That is on his mind, yeah. yeah. But then he meets an elusive hermit who basically tells him that somebody has killed his father. And so that, along with the death of his adopted parents, his aunt and uncle, at the hands of Imperial soldiers, it drives him to adventure. All right, So that's the call to adventure there. And then in The Lord of the Rings, another very sweeping story, the call to adventure, it's the same as it is in The Hobbit, really. Mm -hmm. Gandalf. Gandalf. uh, This mysterious stranger who knows so much. Harbinger of change. Comes to the front door for some unknown reason, really. Yeah, at least to the hobbits anyway. And he basically says, I need help with a mission, and I have chosen you. Whether you want it or not. (laughs) Yeah. And so um, the call to adventure there is pretty explicit as well so how can you incorporate things like this into a game what kinds of things can we come up with off the top of our heads as to how to do a call to adventure
1: so when making a call to adventure for a Dungeons and dragons game especially or just any kind of role-playing game it can be a bit difficult because the uh the players have the ability to make whatever characters they want. And mm-hmm. so they could come from all kinds of walks of life. You've got. Even from different parts of the world. Yeah, different parts of the world. You, you've got people who. You've got good people, you've got bad people. Um, they could all be in the same party, basically. And uh, you have to try and find some way that logically ties them all together in a single unified purpose. Uh,
0: yeah, I have found uh, that this advantage. is the hardest part oh, yeah, of yeah, getting a game going is. Getting the party together. Yeah. That, that That's the part that terrifies me the most as a dungeon master. And that's kind of why I had all three of you start off as somewhat related to the same village. Yeah. So you yeah. kind of knew each other, even though you didn't really.
1: Yeah. One of the most cliche ones, at least among the Dungeons & Dragons community, is... There's some kind of job that needs to be done. And so you all meet in the tavern where some kind of mysterious agent is like, I need you to go to X place and retrieve the X artifact or kill the X creature. And uh, you'll get some gold. And then usually there's some kind of tie in at the location that the players have to go to that then links whatever's going on there, turning it from what might've been just like some small unimportant group of smugglers or something like that into some kind of much more wide-reaching menace that the players have discovered that then needs to be taken care of. That's exactly right. Which then leads them on a wider adventure. Yeah. So that's the most cliche one. Uh, But there's a whole variety of ways to do it, like going on the road and then you get ambushed. Oh, wait, I'm pulling from Mines of Fandilver. That's Uh, fine. (laughs) You're going on the road, and then you get ambushed by uh, raiders who are then under the payroll of some larger force that carries a greater threat to a wider area. And
0: you think about our stack of dice game, really the call to adventure was the great stag.
1: Yeah, some kind of higher being of greater power that, that directly informs you there's a bad presence out there, and so you need to go and stop it.
0: Okay, so freewheeling here a bit. Let's each come up with maybe two different ways to call to adventure. Okay, I've got a couple. And if I'm talking and you think of something, feel free to chip in with your own idea. Uh, the first one is, what if you're, again, just living your day-to-day life as a character in a, in a game, and all of a sudden a, a rival nation attacks your town? You're, you're on a border. Did I take your idea? <laughs> Vaguely. Uh, and so you're basically enslaved. Oh, you didn't take mine then. Okay. Now you and maybe the other party members are having to, first of all, find your freedom. So you've been forced into this situation and you don't want to be there. And so now step one is to get yourself out of it and then form some kind of force or or fight against that evil power. And so your call to adventure has been thrust upon you as most of them are really.
1: Uh, I I had one similar along those lines. It was definitely relating to the conflict between nations. But instead of being enslaved, the characters are then brought into the uh, their homeland's military, hmm. uh, be it like some kind of army or a local militia or something like that. But then through some kind of circumstance, the players are then put into a position of greater authority, where then they are given more of a direct influence over how the conflict is resolved.
0: And that could be an interesting approach because especially if you're working with a group of players who are more tactics and perhaps even strategy-minded, then you could get into large-scale conflict. Get all your Warhammer players together. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Break out the minis and let's do some large-scale battles. The other thought that I had was, taking today's situation in mind, disease. Hmm. A great disease comes across country the world whatever and so your call to action is your maybe your family is ailing they're they're on the point of death and your call to action is i have not been as badly affected find the cure i need to know why and i also need to find the cure and bring it back so your call is save my family
1: Mm -hmm. again another very human aspiration Mm -hmm. is, is people that you care about and so you will do what you can to protect them right one thing I, d- I did think would be worth pointing out in uh, developing your call to action, your plot hook, is what kind of struggle are you looking to create? Because there are a variety of different struggles. I mean, we all kind of discussed those in English class, like back in middle school, when we were talking about like trying to develop what types of conflicts are in the books you read in your boring textbooks and whatnot. I haven't been in middle school for a while, so I'm kind of having to... Um, remember from the dusty cobweb back corner of my mind (laughs) what exactly these forms of conflict were but if I remember correctly we have man versus man so you just like one person against another like a rival of some sort you've got man versus nature where these are usually more like survival type stories where it's like it's man versus the intangible entity that is the world itself nature the outdoors stuff like that then you have man versus self which Mm -hmm. which is uh, an internal struggle can sometimes be linked with psychological horror and then there's man versus society where it's one man versus a a way of life a way of of life a way of of thinking or in in a more direct sense just a group of people Mm -hmm. instead and so uh It's important to kind of keep this in mind when you're trying to figure out how exactly, what what kind of adventure you're looking for. And so I was thinking it would be interesting um, to have kind of like, like if if your party is a bit more nature-based, like you've got a whole bunch of rangers and druids in your party, some kind of uh, man versus nature struggle where excessive tree cutting or other generic bad nature stuff like that, that the players have to fight against.
0: That would be more like that's people doing that. But if there's, say, natural disasters going on. That too. Finding the root cause of that. Another fun one, you know, based on those types of conflict that you mentioned, Thane, is what if you were made to be a monster? What if you were made to be evil or to basically be the destruction of the world or something? And your character's response is, no, I'm not going to be that. Mm-hmm. And so now it's you versus yourself, yeah. and that, that constant pull. That could be a really interesting campaign. That really could be. Yeah. For at least one of the (laughs) Blairs. Maybe for all of them, you know, because then then the rest of the party is tied into, hey, we've got to stop you from hurting yourself and others.
1: I mean, we've we've kind of got a little bit of that in our podcast with Peter's uh, situation with the Starstone. He's constantly drawn to their power. In some cases, like in the canyon, that was for good. but that power and access could definitely be very harmful if used improperly. Yeah, absolutely. And so we've got a little bit of that internal struggle. Not as well-developed as I think it could be, Yeah, but we'll see where it goes.
0: Hey, I'm sure there are lots of things that we would do differently if we re-recorded all this. Uh, there are de- certainly decisions I would have done differently as a dungeon master.
1: I actually recorded the first Battle of Arden. <laughs>
0: All right, let's move on to the next part, and that is the refusal of the call. Campbell's writing on it says, Refusal of the summons converts the adventure into its negative. Walled in boredom, hard work, or culture, the subject loses the power of significant affirmative action and becomes a victim to be saved. His flowering world becomes a wasteland of dry stones, and his life feels meaningless, even though, like King Minos, he may, through titanic effort, succeed in building an empire or renown. Whatever house he builds, it will be a house of death, a labyrinth of Cyclopean walls to hide from him, his Minotaur. All he can do is create new problems for himself and await the gradual approach of his disintegration. That sounds pretty bleak. (laughs) So the examples that they share are in The Lord of the Rings. Um, The refusal of the call is very easy to see. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gandalf says, listen, Frodo, you need to take this ring to Mount Doom and destroy it. And Frodo's response is, well, I, I'm not up for this. I'm, why I'm would a, you pick me? Yeah, I'm a hobbit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so uh, we see the same thing uh, with Obi-Wan speaking with Luke. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, Darth Vader killed your father. And Luke basically just says, no, I, I, I don't want to get mixed. It's too big for me.
1: I'm a farm kid. I'm, I, I don't have time to be get caught up in galactic struggles. That's right. That's right. And he doesn't go until his his aunt and uncle get torched. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert.
0: (laughs) Let's talk about it in terms of our game. Was there a refusal of the call? So the stag said, I have chosen you. Was there a little bit of disbelief at first? I can
1: definitely see that in Peter, Mm -hmm. uh, being the way he was taught and raised. Uh, Magic didn't really exist to him. And all this supernatural, for lack of better words, uh, that he was thrust into. Mm -hmm. And so he definitely uh, had a bit more difficulty really getting, of course he didn't outright refuse that there wasn't a period of time where he like sat back in Arden and then realized, Oh wait, I really need to go.
0: Well, I guess there was also that scene at the top of the mountain after Mm -hmm. you got through the challenges and there was a test. Right. Uh, do you, do you go back to Arden or do you push on with the, with the quest? And after you all said, okay, we accept it, and there was some deliberation there, oh, yeah, um, that's when he gave you the Star Stones.
1: And then we went back to Arden, and then we killed a whole bunch of dudes. It was that's like, right. fantastic.
0: Yeah. So that one was pretty easy, and that's really not something that you as a DM can necessarily work in. You're going to have to leave that one up to your players, mm-hmm. and it's going to depend on how realistically they're thinking. Yeah. Because if you're just an average guy, suddenly uh, the call to adventure hits you, Chances are, realistically speaking, like if suddenly a world leader called you at home and said, you're the only person with this special skill and we need you to come help us, our lives are at stake. Yeah, I would be very put off by that. You're telling me that my skill may influence whether people live or die. That's a lot to ask of me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if players are really playing their characters, you're going to have that mentality in them.
1: Yeah. What I'm thinking of immediately is like back in Vietnam, you're being drafted to go off to the military and a lot of people weren't okay with that for various reasons, of course, but like the, the, their call to action was to go and serve over overseas. And a lot of people didn't want that. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I mean, it's a bit of a weird example, but I I do think that that is very applicable in this, in this sense.
0: Oh, absolutely. Again, as a dungeon master, If you're setting the stage right and building a big enough story with hooks and everything, this should be a natural outgrowth of that. You want me to what? You don't want to make it sound so overwhelming that they're just like, no, forget it. I want to be a farmer for the rest of my days. That's kind of missing the mark.
1: As we established in the previous point, there has to be a reason for the player to go, usually tied to some kind of human goal, yeah, survival, life. In its most basic sense... It is the preservation of life in some way or another, be it for yourself or for someone else. That's the purpose of the adventure. And now it's just the level of how high the stakes are that puts the main character off at first until something causes them to realize that there is no other choice.
0: Yeah. So DMs keep it human, keep the problems human, keep them within reach, but just enough within reach that uh, that it sounds daunting and you'll be able to stick to this heroic cycle the next one is meeting the mentor once the hero is committed to the quest consciously or unconsciously his guide and magical helper appears or becomes known more often than not the supernatural mentor will present the hero with one or more talismans or artifacts sounds familiar that will aid him later in his quest So, what Joseph Campbell said was For those who have not refused the call, the first encounter of the hero journey is with a protective figure, often a little old crone or old man, who provides the adventurer with amulets against the dragon forces he is about to pass. What such a figure represents is the benign, protecting power of destiny. The fantasy is a reassurance, promise that the peace of paradise which was known first within the mother womb is not to be lost that it supports the present and stands in the future as well as in the past, as Omega as well as Alpha, that though omnipotence may seem to be endangered by the threshold passages and life awakenings, protective power is always and ever present within or just behind the unfamiliar features of the world. One has only to know and trust, and the ageless guardians will appear. Having responded to his own call and continuing to follow courageously as the consequences unfold, the hero finds all the forces of the unconscious at his side, Mother Nature herself supports the mighty task, and insofar as the hero's act coincides with that for which his society is ready, he seems to ride on the great rhythm of the historical process. That's a lot of words to say you meet somebody who has a lot of wisdom and they're going to act as a guide.
1: Yeah, gives you the experience. That's the fun thing about stories is when you really break them down like uh, Campbell has done here, you really just see that Every story is the story of human life and growth. This call to adventure is the progression from childhood to adulthood. And the mentor uh, usually often serves as a father figure to the character. You have Gandalf in uh, The Lord of the Rings, the old man who gives Frodo the advice and the guidance that he needs uh, in order to make his journey to Mordor. You have Obi-Wan Kenobi, who steps in as Luke's father figure and teaches him how to use the force Mm -hmm. and how to feel the force and to use it for good.
0: And what's great about these figures is they don't have to stay in the story. Gandalf drops out from time to time. Oh, yeah. Obi-Wan Kenobi ends up getting killed. Spoiler alert again for those who haven't seen star Wars in the last (laughs) 50 years. (laughs) If you find that they are relying that your characters are relying too much on the wisdom, on the guidance of this mentor figure, feel free to drop them out, kill them or kill them. It's so
1: easy and so satisfying.
0: (laughs) And so let's think about some possible figures. What, what kinds of figures could you add in as mentors in a game?
1: Well, um, with our podcast, uh-huh. the Iron Stag definitely does serve as our guide mentor figure who come, pops in every now and again to yeah. give us the direction that we
0: need, especially when we're feeling a bit lost in the vastness of the world. And to a smaller degree, even a could be seen as something of a mentor figure. He Little, comes yeah. and he goes and he gives you things that are helpful. Yeah. So you actually have a couple.
1: Yeah, we have... Two main ones at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so again, let's take a little bit of time to think through some possible mentors. What about going back to my rival nation scenario? You've been captured. And what if one of the leaders of your homeland's army is imprisoned with you? Perhaps he's been gravely wounded or he's near death himself. And so he, from his last moments, he's basically giving you advice on how to Maybe how to escape from your imprisonment, how to band together, where to go after, who to look for. I mean, you know, there's somebody who is giving you the benefit of his vast experience to help you out as players. Yeah. That's one possibility. And even though Thane has used the term father figure, that doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be a guy. It could be like an old grandmother or somebody who has lived for hundreds of years or. Usually decades.
1: this mentor figure is old in some capacity. Mm-hmm. You rarely ever see a young mentor figure because it's just unlikely because they they haven't lived long enough to acquire much experience to pass on to the players.
0: And actually that, that brings to mind another fun thought. What about a child of promise? What about a, let's say, a prophesied child who has come and somehow possesses great wisdom and so... There could be a great flip-flopping of notions of wisdom, as the party has to maybe protect or help this child, but at the same time, the child is helping them. There, there could be some fun in that.
1: And the child couldn't even probably wouldn't even have to possess a whole bunch of wisdom because the questions the child asks um, are very thought-provoking because they're they're such simple questions, but they really, really. Come the deepest parts of our consciousness. Kids just want to understand how the world works, and so they'll ask, you know, why is this the way it is? And (laughs) then you just kind of have to go, well, you see, it's because, well, (laughs) I mean, yeah. So you've got like, yeah, and, and, and so all this stuff, and so the child becomes a mentor to the party not through directly giving them the knowledge that they need but through basically helping them discover it themselves mm-hmm. by making them think about yeah. think through it on it's their own it's a
0: socratic child <laughs> okay some why fun why do we think some fun possibilities there and again if maybe there are some built-in weaknesses to your mentor figure then it's especially uh, important that the party rally round and provide that security that to keep the wisdom flowing. There could be some interest there. Yeah. And again, if you're going with the child of prophecy thing, maybe you have to get the child to a place to become the new ruler of a, of a nation. And Rightful of course, heir. inevitably you're going to have that one party member. That's just like, I don't get it. Everybody thinks this child is so great. And so wise, he's just asking stupid questions. So there's some fun possibilities. Yeah, yeah, there's there. There's
1: some uh, <laughs> chance for comic for comedy. Yeah. There. Yeah.
0: Lots of fun. <laughs> All right, the next one is Crossing the First Threshold. This is the point where the hero actually crosses into the field of adventure, leaving the known limits of his world, and venturing into an unknown and dangerous realm where the rules and limits are unknown. Campbell says, With the personifications of his destiny to guide and aid him, the hero goes forward in his adventure until he comes to the threshold guardian at the entrance to the zone of magnified power. Such custodians bound the world in four directions, also up and down, standing for the limits of the hero's present sphere or life horizon. Beyond them is darkness, the unknown and danger, just as beyond the parental watch is danger to the infant and beyond the protection of a society, danger to the members of the tribe. And it goes on with more ideas like that. But basically, that first threshold can be a very visible thing. In the Stack of Dice series, I made a distinction. So you were on the road out of Arden, and you came to a a point where there was a rock with a stag's head carved into it at a waterfall. And that was basically the limit of Arden. So for Tira, she'd never been outside of that for Womber bash. Of course, he'd never been outside his forest. So everything was new and interesting to him. You had been this way before with physic comfrey. Yeah.
1: Because of Flunmore, but it was really when we like got out of Flunmore and, yeah. and went going on our way. Um, especially when we got to, um, Seth, our that was when I had really kind of crossed over my,
0: my, Threshold. That's right. Actually, um, heading east out of Flynnmore after the fight with the Witch Doctor in episode 15, when you went up into the hills, into that little town.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, Dunn.
0: Yeah. And so you've got different lines of demarcation for each of the players. Uh, each one had a different threshold, but the threshold existed. And so I tried to make it a very distinctive, you're stepping over. And we see that in The Lord of the Rings. There's a, a point in the movie where Sam says i take one more step mr frodo and i can bring that up yeah i'll be further from home than i've ever been before further from
1: the shire than i've ever been yeah
0: And that's that's a moving moment because he realizes what he's giving up he realizes he is heading into the vast unknown and life as he knows it will change forever
1: and this is symbolized in the cycle of human life uh with leaving behind the child you were and becoming the person who you will be and so it's 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 just this unknown expanse that you set off into
0: all right and so let's think about thresholds what kinds of thresholds could there be obviously with the uh enslavement uh i mean you're being dragged off to another country your freedom has been taken away that's that's a very clear delineation right and it, there
1: and it kind of hits uh, very early on could even be before you really even meet your mentor
0: character mm mm-hmm. mhm I anticipate that these could be very fluid. He presents them in a very methodical manner. And so in many of the stories that you'll read, myths, novels, that kind of stuff, you're going to see that these kind of follow that same progression. But uh, that's part of the fun of being a creator as a dungeon master. You have the freedom to tinker with order. You have the freedom to really play around and and make things in the way you want them to be.
1: And it's all mostly symbolism really Mm -hmm. uh joseph campbell doesn't say you know the threshold is when you cross over a certain thing he just he just kind of gives examples of what it means and then leaves it up to you the storyteller to figure out how exactly you're going to show that uh one way is like like we established physical boundaries showing the limit of the character's home be at the gate of a city, the uh, boundary marker of a village area. These very tangible signs of this is, this marks where my home is, and anything beyond this is not that. And so when you leave that, then you realize definitely that you've crossed into unknown territory.
0: Yeah. My advice to dungeon masters is to make that crossing the threshold a very clear, very deliberate thing so that they realize once we go past this, there's no turning back. I think that builds in their minds the importance of the task they're undertaking, underscores it, reinforces it, and helps them to realize if we do this, we will not be the same people. Yeah. That could be a lot of that f- is fun. That has
1: definitely happened to the party now. We are very different than we were, you know, how many, what, 60-ish episodes ago?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the uh, uh, 75 at the moment. Whew. And the, uh, the great thing is the threshold doesn't have to be physical to be visible. Mm-hmm. It could be a moral quandary. Yeah. Do we do this thing? If we do, we're committed. Do we rebel against the king? If we do, it's going to be a running battle for the rest and of our lives. We can't give
1: it up. Uh, yeah. Do, do I join the fight of the rebellion against the empire?
0: Do mm-hmm. I pick up the ring and set out to Mordor? Great. All right, the next one, which rounds out the first real section, which is departure, is the belly of the whale. The belly of the whale represents the final separation from the hero's known world and self. By entering this stage, the person shows willingness to undergo a metamorphosis. When first entering the stage, the hero may encounter a minor danger or setback. Campbell says the idea that the passage of the magical threshold is a transit into a sphere of rebirth is symbolized in the worldwide womb image of the belly of the whale. The hero, instead of conquering or conciliating the power of the Threshold, is swallowed into the unknown and would appear to have died. This popular motif gives emphasis to the lesson that the passage of the Threshold is a form of self-annihilation. And again, he goes on from there. But very clearly, I think Star Wars shows us uh, Luke goes into the Death Star. I mean, he goes into the heart of the enemy's concentrated power, mm-hmm. and he, he realizes at that point, I'm all in. Yeah. With Frodo and the gang, <laughs> if I can be so... Frodo and the boys. <laughs> That's right. I don't know that this is the belly of the whale, but when, when they go into Moria...
1: Yeah, I was, I was thinking that. Moria. Yeah.
0: By going in, they've already had a limitation of what routes they can choose, and when they choose Moria, because they think it's going to be the most direct and fastest to get where they want to go, once they're in and the doors close, behind, well, they actually slam shut behind them, there is no other way. So they disappear into the darkness. They face dangers below the Earth. And they do eventually emerge on the other side. And that, just like any good hero story, the heroes are going to find a way to overcome that danger mm-hmm. and come through. Luke makes it out of the Death Star after obviously a lot of excitement going on there. And so that belly of the whale is a crucial part. It should be kind of like a crucible. It should be like a, um, a trial by fire mm-hmm. where there's an actual descent of some sort. Uh, maybe if we're going with that, uh, the man versus self conflict, it could be dealing with depression. It could be going into a, a, a downward slide mentally with more of a physical thing. It could be, you know, if you're imprisoned, again, going back to the enslaved storyline, if you spend a year or two as a slave, you basically disappeared from your homeland, you've been brought over, you're doing toil and hard work, but you're getting stronger. You're building that resentment, you're building that will to fight, to resist, so that when you do burst through, you're ready to operate. Yeah. Lots of good stuff there. We break then into the second section which is called initiation and the first part of that is the road of trials this is a series of tests the hero must undergo to begin the transformation often the hero fails one or more of these tests which often occur in threes eventually the hero will overcome these trials and move on to the next step campbell says once having traversed the threshold. The hero moves in a dream landscape of curiously fluid, ambiguous forms where he must survive a succession of trials. This is a favorite phase of the myth adventure. It has produced a world literature of miraculous tests and ordeals. The hero is covertly aided by the advice, amulets, and secret agents of the supernatural helper whom he met before his entrance into this region. And he goes on. Where do you see the road of trials? How about Star Wars? Perhaps when, uh, when Luke is doing his initial training on board the Millennium yes. Falcon, he's, yeah. got the, uh, the, he's got the helmet on. The helmet, and he's, it's got the blast shield down so he can't see, but he's trying to use the Force. He's trying to sense where that, that training droid is going to shoot its laser bolts. And uh, he's obviously not quite as good at that at first until he learns to reach out using the Force.
1: Yeah. And uh, so there's that. Uh, Lord of the Rings,
0: perhaps. Uh, when it mentions making mistakes, Frodo slips on the ring at the worst possible moments. Yes, and that leads to interesting Nazgul situations. Attack. There on Weather Weathertop, where he becomes visible and basically summons all the Nazgul to him, and he ends up getting stabbed as a result. Uh, so that road of trial—it's that period of development as characters where you're letting them start to explore their powers, their abilities. And as starting characters, they may not know how to use them well. Make this the period of the story, Dungeon Masters, where they get to try out new things, where they get some of the lower-level magical items, where they can really see how they're going to influence the world around them.
1: I'd say this is when Beowulf faces Grendel. That's his first real test. The first bit of the story is just building up to him, getting to Herod... Uh, and there he hears about the terror that Grendel wreaks upon the, the people there. And so his trial there, which does come in threes, Grendel, his mother, and then the dragon. But uh, his trial uh, that really introduces us to who Beowulf is, how powerful he is as a warrior and whatnot, is when Grendel comes in and he has his unarmed fight against, against that beast
0: the next one is the meeting with the goddess. This is where the hero gains items given to him that will help him in the future. Campbell says, The ultimate adventure, when all the barriers and ogres have been overcome, is commonly represented as a mystical marriage of the triumphant hero soul with the queen goddess of the world. This is the crisis at the nadir, the zenith, or at the uttermost edge of the earth, at the central point of the cosmos, in the tabernacle of the temple, or within the darkness of the deepest chamber of the heart.
1: Introduce the mother figure. Half mother, half wife.
0: Perhaps. And in Peter's case, obviously, that is Visham. Mm-hmm. So we, we have unconsciously incorporated that into our game. Yeah. Uh, and she has given you the gift of new life, of magic. And of magic. The great thing about all this stuff, with the way that Campbell wrote about it, is it's very fluid. It's very open to interpretation. There's not one thing that has to be this way. And so you have a lot of leeway. So what ways could we have a meeting with a goddess in any game? Realizing, again, that a goddess does not need to be an actual goddess.
1: I mean, my mind jumps immediately to Galadriel. Mm
0: -hmm. uh, Okay,
1: good. Edloth Lorien. Or Princess Leia.
0: Yeah, she would be a pretty sarcastic goddess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Again, fluid, up to interpretation. (laughs) True.
0: That's your interpretation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She's definitely not the uh, fluttering eyelashes
0: princess. Well, if for that matter, it could be that the Force could be considered the goddess. Very true. It's indistinct. It's not a physical thing. And in fact, Han openly scoffs at it. He he calls it hokey religion. (laughs) But for those who pull upon its power, they are able to draw incredible powers out of it.
1: Yeah. The purpose of the goddess is to grant a certain power to the characters. Mm -hmm. So uh, Galadriel gives Frodo uh, the ability to look into the mirror.
0: So ways that you could use that. Obviously, in our game, we have the return of magic into the world Mm -hmm. uh, through various sources. Obviously, Starstone is the big one. I wouldn't consider Starstone necessarily a goddess. But we do you are trying to restore the gods to their rightful positions. There is godly figures at work, even if you can't really see it happening. Yeah. Alright. The next one, and the penultimate one for this particular episode is the woman as temptress. Hmm. In this step, the hero faces those temptations, often of a physical or pleasurable nature. That may lead him to abandon or stray from his quest, which does not necessarily have to be represented by a woman. Woman is a metaphor for the physical or material temptations of life, since the hero knight was often tempted by lust from his spiritual journey. Campbell says the crux of the curious difficulty lies in the fact that our conscious views of what life ought to be seldom correspond to what life really is. Mm -hmm. Generally, we refuse to admit within ourselves or within our friends the fullness of that pushing, self-protective, malodorous, carnivorous, lecherous fever, which is the very nature of the organic cell. Rather, we tend to perfume, whitewash, and reinterpret, meanwhile imagining that all the flies in the ointment, all the hairs in the soup are the faults of some unpleasant, someone else, and so on. Uh, And so I guess part of that could be the realization that this is a really tough thing that we've undertaken. Yeah.
1: There was the refusal of the call... Which was basically the reluctance. They don't quite. Uh, the character doesn't quite know what exactly is involved with the adventure, but knows that it's it's a lot, and, and therefore doesn't really want to go uh, for it uh, until he is convinced otherwise. But here, but here is when he realizes everything that's going on and what it requires of him, and then is first truly tempted to give up. And so,
0: perhaps uh, in the Lord of the Rings, for instance, you've got the splitting of the party. Boromir Mm -hmm. gets killed. The party really just goes in all sorts of different directions. Yeah,
1: they've already lost Gandalf, which was a heavy blow, and then losing another one in that orc attack. And so, Frodo, while he doesn't give up, he's not tempted to give up on the quest, he believes that it's best that he just go alone. Mm -hmm. And so... He goes off to do that. Merry and Pippin have been taken, and so Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli go after them. Yep. The main character of the story, that is the Fellowship, is really tempted to fail, even though we know they don't.
0: Good. So what kinds of temptations could you put into a game that might cause roadblocks or obstacles?
1: First experience of combat. You realize the horrors, you see the horrors of war, and so you're tempted to leave.
0: Okay. Or what if the big bad evil guy basically has some kind of leverage on you? Mm-hmm. If you keep pushing, I'm gonna kill your family. Yeah. Who happens to be in my power. You know, that that could be a huge temptation to give up. Another one is maybe the work that you're undertaking has a direct toll on you as the character. Yeah. So for instance, if you work into your magic system in a game that using magic has an effect if you grant life to someone, that life comes from someone else Yeah. kind of thing. Well, you know, the temptation is there. Well, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm a good character. I can't, I can't take life from somebody else and give it to this person. So I, I guess I just need to hang up my hat. There's some fun ways that you could play with those notions of morality, of the cost of adventuring, the cost of heroship that could be Uh, factors in your game definitely and the last one we're going to cover is atonement with the father or abyss in this step the hero must confront and be initiated by whatever holds the ultimate power in his life in many myths and stories this is the father or a father figure who has life and death power this is the center point of the journey all the previous steps have been moving into this place all that follow will move out from it Although this step is most frequently symbolized by an encounter with a male entity, it does not have to be a male, just someone or a thing, with incredible power. Campbell says atonement consists in no more than the abandonment of that self-generated double monster, the dragon thought to be God, and the dragon thought to be sin. But this requires an abandonment of the attachment to ego itself, and that is what is difficult. One must have a faith that the Father is merciful, and then a reliance on that mercy, and so on. Star Wars is easy. That scene in The Empire Strikes Back where Luke and Darth Vader have that that pull, the push and pull, that finally gets resolved in Return of the Jedi.
1: Mm-hmm. I would definitely say that's most easily seen in their direct fight in on Bespin, mm-hmm. in the underbelly of the city, where he fights a whole lot. He does get beaten pretty hard. But he escapes to, to fight again, basically. But, uh, but that
0: atonement with the father, that yeah. coming back together and, and reconciling, um, <laughs> that's a powerful thematic element.
1: Yeah. And he also falls into the abyss. So, I mean, that's two birds in one stone.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. So what kinds of atonement with father figures, and again, realizing that father doesn't have to be male, mm-hmm. uh, with leading figures can you put into a game i think an easy one is estranged family Mm -hmm. Uh, so maybe if the hook for one of your characters is they're from a noble background or, or maybe it doesn't have to be nobility it could just be you had a falling out with your family and your intent is to restore your relationship to restore honor to your family, that kind of thing. We're, we're playing a home game right now with the four of us here at home. And Meredith is playing a female wizard who is trying to restore her family's honor. And so the noble family has fallen on hard times, and she wants to do what she can to bring them back into a reputable status. So that's that's a great way of doing that. There could be another instance where perhaps the characters have undertaken a mission And so they're out doing things, and in the process of taking on that mission, they have angered the leader of their country. Mm. So a king, a kingdom, uh, maybe queen or something, but basically they've caused a rift between themselves, and they've become fugitives or outlaws or something. And maybe the thinking of their mission now shifts to, let's take care of this so we can prove that we're not the guilty ones, and therefore restore our rightful relationship with the government
1: or maybe in that example story we came up with a while ago about the rebellion against the against the tyrannical regime and the reconciliation is a confrontation between the characters and the tyrant himself uh which wouldn't really be reconciled probably wouldn't be reconciled unless unless you see it
0: as the position and not the person yes so ousting the old tyrant and bringing in the rightful heir yeah that would be that reunification yeah good good one okay so we have talked for quite a bit about the first nine steps in the heroic cycle like i said we will revisit part two with the last eight next week but we wanted to take a moment again just to go over joseph campbell's Heroic cycle, and that this all comes out of his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, that was published in 1949. So it's got some legs on it. It's an old book, and it has stood up okay to the test of time and future analysis of myths and stories and things. As always, Dungeon Masters, this is only stuff that you can take into account. This is part of your toolkit. You don't need to feel obligated to hold to this, certainly if it's going to affect your game in negative ways don't use this. But we just wanted to make you aware that there is some thinking out there on what makes big stories so appealing to people over time.
1: It's a guide of suggestions. That's right. I would say. We're we're not telling you this is how you tell your story. Right. These are big elements that are seen in a lot of very good stories that a lot of people like because they're very relatable.
0: Yeah. And I think the benefit to doing this, to using the heroic cycle is it will feel familiar to your players and give you a framework to work with as you flesh out your overarching campaign ideas. There's almost a natural flow to it. Mm -hmm. So what we'd love to hear from you, Stackers, is have you used this consciously? Is this news to you? If so, what do you think about it? And if it's not news to you, how have you used the heroic cycle in helping to build your campaigns? Hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Stackodice. Or by email at stack.odice at gmail.com. We're always happy to hear from our stackers, and we'd love to hear what you think about what we talked about this week. And again, we'll continue next week with the last eight steps of the heroic cycle. We look forward to seeing you again next time, right here at Stack of Dice. <laughs>